Hey, this morning we are uh, concluding the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. And this is going to let you know where the book of Esther is found. And then the large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 8 and verse 3. And we're going to stay in into the conclusion of the book in chapter 10 and verse 3. And so when you, when you think about the book of Esther, and, and maybe you haven't been here the last five weeks, and so you're thinking, you know, it seems like we've covered a lot in this book, I, I've missed it, and so let's just kind of rehash this previously on Esther, right? You like that? I like that. And so in Esther, uh, so the book opens, and there's this guy, his name is King uh, Ahasuerus, and he is just this guy who is uh, power hungry and all obsessed with himself and so he throws his party for 187 days and he says everybody come see how great I am how great all of my stuff is and so they're there they're celebrating at the end of that time he says what would be even better is if my wife came in here and you guys went ooh and ah and how great she is honey would you come over and she says no and that's the kind of the inciting incident that began all of these things. And so uh, Vashti says no. And so they begin this search to, to find a replacement bride for him. And so they send the notice out to all over the empire of Persia, to all 127 provinces, all the way from Sudan down to, uh, to Pakistan. And so they do this. And, and what they find is that in this wide call of women, they find the young girl Esther, right? And so she is this, this young Jewish woman who goes in, and her uncle uh, Mordecai says, listen, whatever you do, don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. So she conceals it. She keeps it hidden. And then over the long course of these things, lo and behold, she wins the competition, and she wins as a con consolation prize the king. Right? And so she becomes queen over this empire. Around around the same time, there's this guy named uh, Haman, who's not a very friendly guy, and Haman hates Jews. Haman has this odd uh, interaction with her adopted father, Mordecai, sometimes lovingly referred to as Uncle Morty. And so he decides that he wants to see all the Jews everywhere put to death. So he talks to the king. He says, listen here, king, what about if we kill these people who have different laws? There are different people. And the king says, I think that's a great idea. This is a good way to spend our time and money or uh, so just go out and take care of it. Well, Uncle Morty is mortified. And so he goes out and he tears his clothes, his sackcloth and ashes. He's in the middle of the city square and saying, woe is me, somebody's got to do something. He reaches out to Esther, who's now queen, and says, can you do something for now such a time as this? And she says, I don't know if I can do something, but maybe I'll try. So she goes before the king. She says, king, you've got to do something. And the king says, what is it you want me to do? And through this long series of dinner parties, Haman dies. Haman dies. And so Haman is put to death. And for all these times, we're, we're standing there and cheering and saying, yes, Haman, the one that wanted the Jews to die, is dead. But the decree that's going to kill all the Jews is still hanging out there. So even while we're in the midst of celebrating, we're thinking, whoa, whoa, everything's not okay. All the Jews aren't safe. And so what we see in 8.3 through 10.3 is how God will once and for all solve the problem of Haman's hateful decree of death for the Jews. And that's what God does here in this last section. So you'll remember that, that Haman is impaled, that, that the Jews have been stayed at least his presence in their lives. And so what we see in 8.3 is that Esther goes once again before the king. Look what it says. It says, then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil that Haman the Agagite, uh, that the plot that devised against the Jews. 
So she goes in there before the king again, and we get this picture that, that this isn't somewhere she just gets to run in anytime she has something that she wants, that this is a serious matter. So she goes in and she falls down before him, indicating her submission to him, indicating she, he holds the power of her life. And when he sees her laying on the ground, he extends his scepter and asks her to stand. So she's asking the king, is there anything you can do? Is there any way that you can save this people? Esther rose, verse 5, and stood before the king and said, now listen to this, if it pleases the king. In essence, Bubba, if this makes you happy, if I found favor in your sight, if you like the way that I look, if the thing seems right before the king in your perverted, twisted, deceptive, decrepit, awful, egocentric worldview, if this makes sense to you, that's the subtext, she didn't say that. And if I'm pleasing in your eyes, again, when you look at me, if it makes you want to to do the things that I'm asking you to do. Let an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman. The letter, coincidentally, which he wrote to destroy the Jews in all the provinces of the king. And she says, for how can I possibly stand to see all my people destroyed? And how can I possibly endure this thing to see my kindred destroyed? So the king kind of kicks back from the situation and he, he evaluates her request. And it's really interesting, if you read through this, it's this non-committal response, almost a sense of, listen, what more do you want me to do? I've already given to Mordecai the signet ring, I've already given to you the house of Haman. In fact, I've already impaled Haman. I, I, I've taken care of this for you, haven't I? There's a guy named David Klein who really paraphrases verses 7 and 8 really well. Essentially, he says, this is what the king says. Write what you like, says the king. As long as it doesn't overturn, revoke, or contradict anything previously written. Write what you like to the Jewish advantage, says the king. As long as you realize that Haman's decree still stands. Write what you like, says the king. It will bear my seal. But remember, so does every other official document, including Haman's letter. Write what you like, says the king, for I give up. The conundrum for how to revoke an irrevocable decree, as you, Esther, have asked, is simply beyond me. But feel free to write what you like. See if you can think of a way to revoke the irrevocable. So Esther's stuck in this situation where she has this all-powerful king who is unwilling and states that he is unable to overcome the decree previously sent out. So she's there with Mordecai in the midst of this. And so in Mordecai's wisdom, what they do is they issue a parallel decree. Now, perhaps you remember that the original decree that went out in chapter 3 and verse 13 said that every Jew, every man, woman, and child is going to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. There would be no more Jews over the face of the earth. Every Jewish person alive at the writing of this would have lived within the confines of the Persian Empire, within the confines of these 127 provinces, and so there's nowhere they can go. They exist nowhere except and under the governance of the king. And so everywhere they live, they're going to be put to death on the 13th of Adar, which is fully nine months from the writing of this time. And so Mordecai realizes, listen, we can't undo the decree. Esther realizes we can't undo the decree, so what we need to issue is a parallel decree. And one of the things you'll find if you look at chapter 3 and verse 13 and chapter 8 and verse 11 is that these things mirror one another. Flip back to chapter 3. Flip back to chapter 3. 
Starting in verse 12, it says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors, to all the provinces, to all the officials, to all the peoples, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. All Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And to plunder their goods. And then when we get to chapter 8 and verse 11. When we get to chapter 8 and verse 11. This new decree that went out, also written in the same way. Also sent out in the same way. And also sealed with a signet ring in the same way. Says the king allowed the Jews. Who are in every city to gather And to defend their lives. Notice, this is a decree of defense, not a decree of offense. The previous decree made every person who engaged in this action a murderer. In fact, the way that that Haman sought to have his decree enacted, sought to have it done, was to make every willing person over the entirety of the Persian Empire a murderer. He wasn't going to use the army, he wasn't going to use the militia, he was going to use average ordinary citizens of the empire of Persia to kill the Jews. But what do we see here? That those Jews who were formerly going to be killed are now given the right to gather, to congregate, to form in mass and to defend their lives. For what purpose? To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any that might attack them and also to plunder their goods. So incredibly important to notice that distinction. They're not allowed just to go out and engage in murder and mass. They are allowed, they are, the decree indicates that they are given the permission to defend their lives and also to take the plunder from those whose lives they take. So it's interesting, in in, in chapter 3, when the decree goes out that all the Jews have to die, that everybody within the kingdom that's going to follow this decree is made a murderer, that everybody is sorrowful. That the Jews find themselves tearing their clothes and adorning themselves with sackcloth and ashes, and, and everyone else in the city, it tells us that they are just so confused. They're bewildered at this decree that went out. They are saddened at the state of affairs. But when this new decree goes out, we see an opposite response to this. We see that the Jews are are light-hearted. We see that they are engaged. We see that they are overcome with joy. Verse 16 says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. Mordecai, who who formerly went out and, and adorned sackcloth and ashes, is described in verse 15 of wearing royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa rejoiced and shouted. They are elated at this new decree where formerly they were overwrought when despair at the previous. And the fantastic thing has happened. You remember back to chapter 2 and verse 10 when uh, Mordecai had told his adopted daughter, listen, when you go into the harem, don't let anybody know you're Jewish. And so there's this great secret that they held on to, not wanting anybody to know for fear that if they knew, they would put her to death. Now what we find at the end of this chapter is that there are those essentially converting to Judaism. Verse 17 says, In every every province, every city where the king's command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. When they heard the news, they celebrated. 
And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Why? For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. For once it was completely out of vogue to be Jewish, now it was the new hot thing. Everybody recognized as they looked around the empire and they said, you know, being Jewish previously seemed to be a real detriment if you wanted to live, but being a Jew now seems to be the end thing, so perhaps we should consider that we should join uh, and become Jewish. Does anybody know a moral? And so they're, they're engaged in this pursuit, they're giving themselves to it, and God is cosmically reversing the, the utter despair of the Jews and raising them to power at the nearest to the right hand of the king. When chapter 9 picks up, it's a full nine months has uh, transpired, and the date is finally come. It says, now in the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar, and the 13th of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. So this is what we've been driving to this whole story. So now we're wondering, how are they going to respond? They, they knew this counter decree was issued. They knew that things were changing. How are they going to respond? It says, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, there were those when they heard this new decree that went out, they said, I love a good fight. I love a good fight. And finally, they're going to get what's coming to them. Finally, they're going to suffer the wrath of all that we've borne in our hearts against them. So when their enemies hoped to finally gain mastery over them, the text tells us the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them, The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of the king to lay hand on all those who sought to harm them. And no one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And not just the peoples. Not just those who sought to to harm them, who sought to kill them. They're not the only ones. But what we see are all the officials, the governors, the satraps, the royal agents, all of these people rally together to help the Jews in this pursuit, in their defense. And why? Because God took a low-level, insignificant, paper-pushing bureaucrat named Mordecai, and he elevated him to be the second most important and powerful person over the entire Persian Empire. And everybody around looked over it, and they saw this guy, and they realized that the king's power was only in his name and only in his office, but the real power and the real direction for all of the empire of Persia rested in Mordecai. And so they rallied towards the Jews, and they fought for them as well. In the midst of this and and all these things transpiring, one of the things we see is that Haman, this man who had been impaled, all ten of his sons are are killed as well. It's this idea that, that God is finishing the justice failed in by Saul. When Saul failed to kill King Agag in 1 Samuel, now Uh, and we see that Haman is a descendant of this family, now that they're coming full circle and all the descendants of King Agag will be eradicated. They will all be wiped out. So all of these people have, have been killed. The Jews have defended themselves. They are celebrating. And even in the midst of this, Esther goes in to meet with the king again. Look here in chapter 9. She goes in to meet with the king again. Let's start in verse 11. It says, The very day those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. And then he asked this question, What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, it's curious that this king has this kind of statement question, but is completely indifferent to what the response is. Because look how he follows it up. Now, what is your wish? In essence, 
Are you satisfied with this? Is this enough? Is this good thing I've done for you? He says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther turns to the king and she says, listen, listen. And knowing the city of Susa and knowing the stronghold of hatred towards the Jews that is there, she said, that thing that you allowed us one day for, would you allow us one more here in Susa? She, she asked the king if he would allow them to take up arms once more, to go out once more and to put to death those who hated the Jews and who sought for their lives. And she also asks that Haman's sons be hung on gallows. Now, why would she ask that? See, it's incredibly important that the people don't just have this fleeting, passing fear of the Jews. It's incredibly important that they don't just have this understanding. You know, this king, he, he's incredibly unpredictable. He decides one thing one day and one thing the next day. It's incredibly important that as they go out and they take the bodies of Haman's sons who were dead and they impale them on posts and they leave them out there for everybody to see, for that to be a testimony for that to be an indication and for that to be an observation that everybody that walks by recognizes this is what happens when you come against these people and their gods. There could be no mistake. Haman had formerly been the leader just underneath the king and Haman had died. Haman's sons came under his authority and under his name and his sons had died. Haman had been made a spectacle and so too his sons. There could be no mistake at the message they wanted the king to proclaim. You must stand for them. You must remember them. Well, all in all, the text tells us that another 300 died. And so the text records that 75,000 uh, men were killed over the entirety of the empire. 75,000 men who rallied against the Jews. 75,000 men who were born with hatred in their hearts towards them and sought to put them to death. And the Jews rallied and defended themselves and killed them instead. Now one of the interesting things you'll observe in this is that they never once took plunder. That in every instance where they rallied and they killed someone attacking them, that they never took the belongings of that family. It was never about amassing wealth. It was only ever about defending themselves. So we see this victory that God has enabled, this victory that he has brought for his people. And what is left to do after a victory? You celebrate, right? Some of you don't, clearly, by the looks on your faces, but, but after you win, you celebrate. And so what we see is that they get together and they celebrate, and the confusing thing as we work through the rest of this book is that there's some confusion about the time to celebrate because everybody outside Susa, they finish the thing on the 13th, so they celebrate it on the 14th. But because Esther made an additional request, they worked on the 13th, they worked on the 14th, and they didn't celebrate until the 15th. And so Mordecai kicks back from the table and he says, look, we're not going to argue about this. We're not going to argue about this. This is not going to be a point of division amongst our people. So some of you are going to worship, you're going to celebrate rather on the 14th, and some of you are going to celebrate on the 15th, and we're going to be so happy and so elated. And so he writes, and the majority of the remainder of the book is just this instruction for how these things are to be. You're going to celebrate on the 14th, you're going to celebrate on the 15th, and this is how it's going. But look at what he does in verse 23 of chapter 9. He, in essence, writes them and says, we must remember. We must remember. 
It says, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. Some are going to celebrate on the 14th. Some are going to celebrate on the 15th. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast pur, that is to cast lots, to crush them, to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim and after the term Pur. Therefore because of all that was written in this letter and all that they had faced in this manner and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail that they would keep these two days according to all that was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. It was important that they not forget. It was so incredibly important that they remember. Maybe when you were watching the, the Super Bowl the other day, in uh, this whole host of ads that went out, one of the most poignant ads in, in, uh, earlier this morning when I checked has been viewed over 52 million times is this, this kind of gut-wrenching, tear-jerking uh, commercial of this guy interacting with Google. Do you remember it? He's on there, and, and he's talking to, to Google, and he says, Google, show me pictures of Loretta. And you see these pictures of his wife pop up, and, and, and a picture of them when they're younger. And he's got this hideous-looking mustache. And he says, remember that she hated my mustache. And it pops up. It says, okay, I'll remember. It says, remember that she loved going to Alaska. And it pops up, and it says, okay, I'll remember. And then he says, show me pictures of our anniversaries. And it starts showing all these pictures of their anniversary from the beginning of their life until later in their life. And he recognized the importance of remembering both his memories of his wife, those things that his wife had said to him, and those things that were, were a part of her character that were so incredibly important and transformative to him over the rest of his life. And she said, remember to leave the house. Remember me and remember to leave the house. He knew how important it was to remember. Over the last five weeks, as we've studied through the book of Esther, we are reminded of a picture of God's providence. A picture of God at work, at work in the seemingly insignificant details of a people's life. A king throws a dinner party and his wife says she's not coming. And it spins into this whole series of events that allow a young Jewish girl to ascend to be the queen of an empire. That her adopted father ascends from being a low-level bureaucrat to being the second most powerful person in all of the empire. God is providentially at work safekeeping his people, protecting them, watching over them, superintending all of these insignificant events for their good, their safety, and for his glory. And we remember the same. We reflect upon God's providence. We look in the rearview mirror of our lives and we have a good understanding of all the various things that God has done. We can think of the silly decisions that we've made and the mistakes that we've been caught up in and looking back over the long haul of our lives, we can see God's gracious hand calling and pulling us out. We can remember God supernaturally superintending to use a friend of ours, an enemy of ours, something we heard to prompt and call our recollection to focus on him. 
it's so incredibly important that we remember. But what we remember as Christians is more than just looking back over the long corridor of our lives. We are also remembering how God defended his people. Now, in the book of Esther, God defended his people by arming them and aiding them to fight back against those who hated them. But in terms of our lives, God didn't aid us to fight. God fought for us. Amen? God fought our battle for us in Christ. The Bible tells us that we were dead in sin. You weren't sick. You weren't enfeebled. You weren't weak. You were dead. I was dead. Paul writes in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15 and says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. God has made us alive by forgiving us in Christ, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We have this beautiful picture that we weren't out there fighting our own battles, that God fought our battle for us in Christ, that he took all of my sin, all of my liabilities, all of your sin and all of your liabilities, and he heaped those on his son. That Jesus came and he lived a perfectly sinless life, but he didn't live that life as a moral influence to how we should live our lives. He lived that life for the express purpose of death and death on a cross. He took all of my sin and all of your sin, and he nailed that through the Son to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The cross isn't a defeat. The cross is a victory. The cross is our victory through Christ. Amen? And he calls us to remember the victory of Christ. But he calls us repeatedly to remember the sacrifice of the Christ in taking of the Lord's Supper, which we'll take next week. Paul writes to this church in Corinth that is all kinds of messed up. And if you don't believe me, it took us over a year to go through it. And he says... Uh, chapter 11 and verse 23 for i received from the lord but i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me we take the lord's supper periodically to remember and to focus in as a body and to reflect on the sacrifice of jesus whose body was broken for us in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it why in remembrance of me. That as we drink of the cup and we take of the bread, we remember his body broken, we remember his blood shed. Why? So that we might have victory in him. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember. But we look for. We don't look back at the defeat of our Lord on the cross and say, what a shame my sin has cost him his life. We look back at the cross and it gives us a clear indication that in the future there is a victory still coming. And it's transformative. When we remember the past, we are victorious in him. When we remember the past, we recognize our sin doesn't hold us there. When we remember the past, we remember the victory that he has wrought, that he has won, that he has poured out his blood for our salvation. When we remember the past, we are live secure in the present, and we dwell on into security in the future. He transforms the way our lives are lived. When we recognize the victory our God has won and continually remember his sacrifice, our lives are changed. 
We don't walk around as a bunch of sorrowful people. We walk around transfixed on the cross, looking for his soon return, and we are joyous. There is reason to be joyous and to celebrate. There is reason to be joyous and to celebrate. If you find joy, if you find satisfaction merely in the victories that you experience in this life, you will find them crushingly disappointing. Because every time you have a victory over some facet of your life, of your finances, of your self-control, within your family, something else is going to come along to show you that your own victories are insufficient to maintain joy. You have to find joy outside of yourself. And that joy for the Christian is found in the sacrifice of Jesus in the sure word that he's coming again. And when we have that joy, that joy transcends difficulty. It transcends difficulty at home. The joy between you and your spouse tends to kind of key in on how y'all are getting along. Are we getting along? Are we arguing a fair amount? And that joy falls and that joy wanes and that joy rebounds, perhaps for an anniversary. But these things are fleeting and they're unsustainable. Our joy uh, at school tends tends to revolve around not being there, right? And for many of us, our joy at work tends to kind of revolve around not being there or having a great sale or having a good review or, or, or some other such thing. But when we find our joy in these passing things, they're going to fail. They're going to disappoint. Now listen, we can have joy at the home and it can be phenomenal. We can have joy in a broken home, in a dysfunctional home. We can have joy at school failing. We can have joy at work being fired. We can have joy in all these places if we find our joy in Jesus. We have a settled future. This is the great news of Christianity. Not merely that he has saved us sometime in the past, but that he saves us still and he saves us to the uttermost on into the future. Amen? And the great news of Christianity deserves to be shared. We had today a panel from these six trips and these people that are going out going out here locally and going to the most remote and hard-to-reach parts of the world. Is the thing that we remember worth telling? For some of us, as we evaluate our lives, our joy is firmly fixed and vacillating on on how we experience the day-to-day emotion of things. But as we reflect on his cross people, As we reflect on the goodness of our Savior, we recognize and we are compelled to report this cause of great joy beyond. Beyond our ability, beyond our sphere of influence, well beyond ourselves. Let us be a people who submit ourselves to remembering and rejoicing. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you give us cause to rejoice. You give us reason to rejoice. God, I pray that you would help us to focus on you in that rejoicing. Help us not to be distracted by those things in life that that pull us down, that take our eyes off of you and off of the grace one for us and brought to us through your son Jesus. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus. 
God, that today that they would cry out for salvation, that they would cry out that their sin might be nailed to the cross, God, that they would desire to know you, and in knowing you to follow you, and in following you to love you. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.